morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to week two of our series from the book of James called How Faith Works. And the title of the series pretty much perfect, perfectly sums up what this series is about. Uh, over, over 12 weeks, we're walking through the book of James and we're allowing it to answer the question, uh, how does faith in Jesus work itself out practically in your in my life? Um, last week, we opened up talking about trials uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Um, we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. Smaller block of text this morning, but I want to read to you James chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which says this. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. This is God's word. So two weekends ago, I was, uh, I was not here because I was officiating a wedding in Colorado, um, and it was a unique experience for me because I didn't know anybody going into that wedding, literally no one other than the bride and groom, and I really didn't know them all that well. And over that weekend, I had the opportunity, I felt like I have got to know basically everybody at, at the wedding, and uh, had a lot of really cool conversations about Christianity and faith and what it means to be a pastor and the gospel and all that kind of stuff. And one phrase that I heard, I've never really been confronted with this before, but one phrase that I heard across the weekend is this phrase, born again. I mean, I've heard the phrase before, but I've never been, been confronted by it like I was. People kept asking me if I was a born-again Christian. And so I finally, uh, finally asked uh, um, an individual who's asking me that what they meant by that, because I didn't understand, um, I just didn't know where they were coming from. And what became clear is uh, a lot of people have a tendency to look at, at uh, the idea of being born again as though it's a specific kind of Christian. In other words, you have normal Christians on the one hand, and then you got the born-again Christians. And they wanted to know if I was weird. You know, because normal Christians, I guess, according to that way of thinking, you know, they believe the Bible and they try to live according to the golden rule. But, you know, they're easy to hang out with. But then you got the born-again Christians, who I guess are people that had this really emotional experience because, I don't know, maybe they needed to have an experience like that and they're the zealots. The problem with that way of thinking is that according to James here in verse 18, you notice he said God gave us new birth. Uh, The problem with thinking in those terms that there's a difference between a a regular Christian and a born-again Christian is that according to James here, according to John, according to Peter, according to Paul, and according to Jesus Christ himself, every legitimate Christian is a person who has been born again. And actually, the opposite of that is also true. If you have not been born again, whatever else you are, you are not a Christian. What the Bible is teaching us, cover to cover, is that you and I need more than a second chance. What we need, fundamentally, is a second life. That's what Jesus has come to provide with his life, death, 
and resurrection. And so what Scripture teaches us, this is kind of Christianity 101, is that the moment that you and I come to terms with the reality that I need a Savior, I am incapable of saving myself, satisfying myself, giving my soul what it needs to make myself right with God, and then in that trusting Jesus to be that Savior for me, the moment that we make that decision and come to that conclusion, in that very moment, we are born again. Now, that has thundering implications for your and my life, um, but that idea raises, a, 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 I think, a very significant and very important question. It's a question that I wanted to put before you on the front end of our time together this morning. Here's the question. If it's true that every single Christian is a person who has been born again, literally, they are a new creation, they are a partaker of the divine nature, they are not what they used to be, they're of a different kind, that's what that means. If that's true of every Christian, then why are we not more changed than we are? Why, are, why do we still have so many of the same struggles that we did before we started walking with Jesus? Why are we still so plagued by the same old fears, the same old insecurities, the same old anxieties? Why do we allow ourselves to be derailed by the thoughts and opinions of others, by the external circumstances of life? Why are we not more loving and more joyful and more peaceful and more humble and more confident and more wise? Why are we not more changed, comma, and how can we be? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, obviously, different passages of Scripture answer a question of that magnitude from different angles. What I'm here today to do is to, to, to lay out for you James's answer to that question. And according to the passage we're looking at today, I think this is a real, um, I'll put it this way, if I was listening, this would cause me to lean in. What James is, is telling you and I in, in James chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, is that one of the main reasons, I'll make it personal, one of the main reasons that you might not be seeing the spiritual growth and health that you want to see in your life is because you don't know how to use the Bible. So this teaching is called How to Use the Bible. And according to James, this passage breaks real neatly into two sections. If you want to approach the Bible in a way that leads to lasting growth in your life, it boils down to, to really two, um, two ideas. It's all about, first off, how you view the Bible. Secondly, how you, pardon the expression, do the Bible. And those two big ideas are going to basically serve as the two moves of our time together this morning. So first and foremost, let's talk about uh, how we have to view the Bible if we're going to be changed by it. The answer to that is found in verses 19 through 21. Let me read it to you. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, and I want to focus on this, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. That's the first overarching command in this passage. It's about humbly receiving the word. Now, I think you know what that means. That basically is talking about a posture of heart that says, okay, I can no longer live the way that I want to live. And with that, it's about allowing God to have ultimate authority over every single area of your life. That's what it means to humbly receive the word. Now, as I was thinking about this idea, it dawned on me that there's two angles I could take, two places I could go from this. One uh, is sort of catered more toward um, you know, secular, modern people that are very suspicious that the Bible is even the Word of God. The other angle or, or, or place I could go with this idea is, is catered more toward Christians who do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but despite that, they're not seeing the change that they want to see in their life. 
So basically, one is more for secular people, one is more for people who are already Christians. While I was thinking through which angle to take, it dawned on me that as a church, we exist to reach both of those kinds of people, so I'm going to walk you through both of those angles one at a time. So first off, uh, let's look at this um, speaking specifically to modern, secular, skeptical, individualistic, uh, anti-institutional people, which is basically what our culture is marked by. Even if you're not a person in this category, I can promise you that people that you know and love are. Um, In our culture... You you tell people that they need to submit themselves to the authority of God's word as the final authority in your life. That sounds crazy, even even more than it did 50, 60 years ago. There was kind of a general respect for the word of God then that has been done away with and replaced with a suspicion. Because in our culture, as we've talked about before, the one commandment of, of modern culture is to follow your heart. And, and so the idea is, you know, you, can, you should, you can and you should cast a wide net and take what you find useful from different philosophies and worldviews and religions and beliefs. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. Nobody has the ability or even should have the ability to do that than you. And so with that mindset, uh, you know, people will approach the Bible um, and basically their approach is, yeah, I, I like this stuff over here. The golden rule seems good. Loving people seems good. Serving people, you know, not being self-centered seems good. But I don't like this stuff over here. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, there's a lot of people that would say, yeah, I, I reject the idea of God altogether or at least Christianity altogether because of some particular teaching in the Bible that I find really offensive. That's a very common mindset. So if I can, let me just speak to that real briefly here. Um, if I had more time on this, I mean, we, this could be a whole sermon series, but let's just say this. If there is, as Christians believe, if there is an omniscient God who's not the product of any one particular culture but transcends all culture, and that God has communicated his will through his word, which that's what Christians believe, then certainly something that God has had to say here will challenge, confront, and even offend people from every single culture eventually. Unless any of us believes that we actually think exactly like an omniscient God would, which I hope no one would believe that. And the truth is, if we were born in a different time and culture... We would, be, we would have trouble with different parts of the Bible than we do being born in, in this culture. So, for instance, as a thought experiment, if you and I were born into to one of any number of ancient cultures that were traditional, uh, in which, you know, you weren't taught to think individualistic, individualistically, but if you were born in an ancient culture in which your survival depended on the integrity and the strength of the family unit, then, then you would look at what the Bible has to say about, for instance, human sexuality, and you would say, okay, that makes sense. But let's say you were born back in a time like that, and members of your family were slaughtered by a neighboring village, clan, or tribe. Well, then being born in that culture, when you got to the parts of the Bible where it talks about loving your enemies and forgiving those who hurt you and praying for those who persecute you, that would be the most offensive thing in the world to you, as it often is even today in ancient cultures. You would read those commands and say, I can't believe in a God that would seriously ask me to do that. I reject Christianity altogether. Now, what's really fascinating is you transport to to our culture today, and it's completely the opposite, is it not? Modern people eat up what the Bible has to say about loving and serving and respecting people who are different than you, people who don't see eye to eye with you. This idea that Jesus Christ is uh, is is a... a savior who died praying for the forgiveness of his enemies. We love that in modern culture. But then you start talking about what God has to say about human sexuality and his design for it, 
And that's the part that's offensive to us here. That's the part where people say that's so narrow-minded, that's so restrictive, that's borderline dangerous. How could you believe something like that? But at the end of the day, the reason that we're offended by the things in the Bible that we're offended by is because we're conditioned to think the way we think by the culture that we're in. Put us in a different time, in a different place. We would think differently and therefore be offended by different parts. But I'm, I'm walking you through all this to simply say it doesn't make sense to dismiss Christianity altogether just because something that this book says offends me. Actually, as a matter of fact, I'd go a step further and say one of the only ways that you and I can know we're having an encounter with a real God rather than a God who's just a, proje- a projection of ourselves that we made up is that what that God has to say at least occasionally challenges, confronts, or offends me. James says people who grow in approaching the Bible are people who understand this and approach the, the Bible accordingly. Now, maybe you hear that and... and you know, that, that, that might be interesting to you. It might be helpful in talking to some of your friends, but it doesn't really apply to you because I'm sure the vast majority of people listening to me right now would say, that's great, but I don't approach the Bible that way. I don't do the pick and choose thing. I really do believe that it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. I'm not saying I live a perfect life, but I do try to give God the final say in my life. And yet I'm not seeing the change that I would love to see in my life, even though I, I read the Bible regularly. What's going on there? And I'll tell you, James has something for you. And I'll also tell you, it's not friendly. Don't get mad at the pastor. Get mad at James. Um, just consider this. James is writing to people who are already believers, right? This is not an open-air sermon that was read all through Greece or whatever. This is written to believers. And J- yet James says, James says he's commanding them to humbly receive the word. Actually, if you go back to 18, he, or, I'm sorry, that's, that's verse what is that, 21, he says, receive the word that's already been implanted in you. He's he's commanding Christians, humbly receive a word that you've already believed. It's already taken root in you. It's already begun to grow in you. You need to humbly receive that. What's the implied statement? Here it is, that you can be a believer and not be humbly receiving the word. So here's the million-dollar question. I think every believer, every Christian would say, yeah, but that's not me. That's somebody else James is talking to. Here's the question. How do you know if that's you? How do you know if you're approaching the Bible in a way that according to the Bible, by the, by the rules laid out by the rule book, how do you know if you are approaching the Bible in a way that it'll actually grow you? And here's the answer. If you want to know, all you have to do is look at what James says right before this in verses 19 and 20. Let me read them to you again. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now, If you're being honest, those verses seem like they don't fit at all here. Because what you have in verse 18, James is saying, you're born again by this word. Down in verse 21, he says, humbly receive that word. But then in 19 and 20, he's talking about being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That doesn't really seem like it fits. It seems like he's just kind of all over the place, but he's not. What James is doing for you in verses 19 and 20 is giving you a litmus test that will reveal to you whether or not you are approaching the Bible in a way that's useless or in a way that will actually change you. Here, here's, the, here's the point. What James is saying is the way you respond to the people around you when they speak into your life will reveal how you respond when God speaks into your life through his word. It is impossible, it is impossible for you and I to be closed off, dismissive, and self-protective toward others 
and yet suddenly open up the Bible and flip a switch, and all of a sudden we're open and receptive and vulnerable and humble toward God. So James says, if you want to know whether or not you're approaching this book the way that you're supposed to approach this book, here's the way to find out. Ask yourself, how do you respond when other people speak into your life? Two implications of this before I move on. First off, if in hearing that, you can't really answer the question because you can't remember the last time somebody spoke into your life. And what, what, I, what I mean by that is, you know, speak into your life. I, I'm, I'm talking about, I, I know you know what I'm talking about, but I'll just, let's get it out here so that all of us are completely uncomfortable because what's good preaching if it doesn't make everyone uncomfortable? When, when I'm talking about somebody speaking into your life, I mean somebody telling you what it's like to be on the other side of you. I'm talking about those horrifying conversations where you feel your heart slamming against your sternum and it's painful, but you know that what you're hearing is what Proverbs defines as the faithful wounds of a friend. That's what I'm talking about. If you can't remember that somebody did that for you, you should assume it's because you're not allowing people to speak into your life. And and the reason I say that is because I I can actually guarantee, because none of us are the finished product, I can guarantee that there are people in, in our lives that have lots to say. They see things that we don't see about ourselves and would love to tell us about some of those things. And so it stands to reason that if they're not, it's because we have communicated in either verbal or nonverbal ways that we're not really interested in hearing it. Maybe people tried to speak into your life for a time, but you punished them, you lashed out at them, you went emotionally cold on them, and so eventually they said, okay, they're not interested in it, forget it. But if nobody's speaking into your life at any given point in your life, we should assume that that's on us and not everybody else. That being said, let's say you do have people who are regularly speaking into your life. The question James invites us to ask ourselves is, how do I respond when people do that? The last time your spouse tried to level with you, the last time your boss, your coworkers, your kids, your friends, people in your small group, the last time somebody tried to level with you, the question this demands we ask is, was I quick to listen or did I completely shut down? Was I slow to speak or did I immediately fire back? Was I slow to anger or did I completely erupt? And, and I, actually, it would be worth it if you, want some home, if you want the most uncomfortable homework assignment of your life this week, I think it'd be worth it to ask the people closest to you, how do I respond when you try to speak into my life? The reason that's a question worth answering, it's not just a question worth answering. The reason why we have so much hinging on that question is because James's whole point here is the same spirit that refuses to let other people speak into your life, that same spirit refuses to let God speak into your life. So if you, it, it, that's just the way that it works. That's just because we're holistic beings and we can't just turn something on in one area of our life and turn it off in the other. What that means is, is if we are dismissive and unresponsive in our horizontal relationships with others, we are going to be dismissive uh, and unresponsive in our vertical relationship with God. And I'll, I'll make a, this might sound strange to hear a pastor say on a Sunday morning, no amount of Bible study is going to do you any good until that's dealt with. And actually, I'll go a step further here, I think Bible study with that kind of spirit at work in us is actually a bad thing because people who study the word of God with that kind of spirit wind up turning the word of God into a weapon with which they wound the people around them. Jesus had a lot to say to people who did this. They're known in the New Testament as Pharisees. And I just want to point out the lovely sound in the room right now. This is James. It's not me. 
I don't like it any more than you do. It's like surgery that you're kept awake for. But we need it. It's good. Right? Well, we're doing it anyway. <laughs> um, so it makes sense to me that James starts here with how we view the Bible. Because you have to start there. You have to start with the posture of heart, the posture of mind. But James being, a, being not only a pastor, but an incredibly practical individual. He was a very practical thinker. He doesn't end there. And so after telling us how we view the Bible, he then goes on to tell us, pardon the expression, how to do the Bible. And how you do the Bible is found for us in verses 22 through 25. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Um, what you have in those verses is uh, three guidelines about what it means to do the Bible and then a promise attached to it, if we will. So that's what I want to walk through here. So how, how do you do the Bible? What does it mean to do the Bible? The first thing James talks about here is studying it intently. You have to study the Bible intently. Sounds simple. Let's look at it. Verse 25, he, he specifically says, talking about looking intently into this law. Uh, the, the, the Greek word that he uses here, I found this out this week, I thought this was really fascinating, when he tells us to look intently into the word, it's the same Greek word that, that described how Peter looked into the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, the very first resurrection morning. Uh, that alone is just kind of, a, oh, okay, that's, that's a little convicting. But let's, go, let's, let's really walk through this. I'm sure you know the story, uh, according to the gospel accounts, Peter ran to the tomb, he saw the stone was rolled away, and he, he, he looked intently, same Greek word that James uses here, uh, at the, the grave clothes that were lying where the body of Jesus should have been. You've got to ask yourself, do I look into the Bible the way that he was looking into that tomb? So, so here's, Peter had to have been looking into this tomb in, in at least three levels. He's looking for surface level information, he's thinking through possible explanations of what he saw, and then he's thinking through the, ex, ex, uh, pardon me, the implications of those possible explanations. Here's what I mean. On the surface, of course, Peter had his eyes peeled. He's looking at the grave clothes. He's looking all around. He's, he's trying to take in every amount of evidence that he can. Beyond that, he's thinking through what possible explanation there could be for what he's seeing. Is it possible that Jesus was never dead in the first place? That didn't make sense because we saw him on that cross. Was it possible that robbers came and stole the body of Jesus. Now, how would they have gotten past the Roman guards? How'd they roll that stone away? And why would they leave the grave clothes here and, and in such perfect condition? Or was it possible that Jesus actually meant what he said when he said after three days he would rise? Was it possible that a man just successfully predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection? And then beyond that, he, would have ha he had to have been uh, thinking through the implications of this. Okay, if Jesus just came back to life, what does that mean for Jesus? for all the truth claims that he made during his time here. What does that mean for me, somebody who followed him? What does that mean for this movement that as of three days ago was dead and now apparently is not? And what does that mean for the whole world that God became a person and died and came back to life? James is saying that's how you and I need to look into the Bible every time God gives us the honor and privilege of doing so. So just as a point of application, this forces us to ask ourselves, obviously, is that how I study? 
Am I willing to sit on a verse and look into it the way that Peter looked into that tomb, desperate to pull everything that I can out of it and then think through the possible explanations and implications for who Jesus is, for who I am in light of Jesus, for the people he's placed in my life and for the whole world in the grand scheme of what God plans to do in redemptive history. That's the first step in being changed by the word of God, in being a doer of God's word. You look into it intently. Beyond that, James also says we study it not only intently, but we study it reflectively. Um, This is kind of a bold statement to make. But people have asked me before, why is it that some people can study the Bible their whole life and they're just, they're not nice? They're mean, they're grumpy. They're, they're the people that I would be, they're the last people I would run to if my life was falling apart instead of, you know, somebody that's shamed, you know, molded by the grace of Jesus Christ. I think James gives us an amazing answer with this second idea here. The whole, the whole imagery, James is saying, we're, we're to listen to the word of, listening to the word of God, being a doer of the word of God. His whole image is based on this idea that the word of God is a mirror that's designed to show you who you really are. It'll never change you unless you approach it that way, says James. There's a, there's a number, in the Bible, there's a number of wrong ways. Jesus highlighted some of them. New Testament authors highlight other ones. There's a lot of wrong ways to read the Bible. One is to read the Bible just to amass knowledge. Paul talks about that. Another wrong way to read the Bible as though it's primarily a window through which you see the problems with your neighbors. The right way to read the Bible is though it's primarily a mirror that's designed to tell you the truth about who you are. And the Bible has the power to do this like no other piece of literature in history. I've always loved this verse. You probably heard it before. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. And this is the part that really is, is meaningful to me. Judging the very thoughts and attitudes of the heart. According to the Bible, no one in your life has, has ever lied to you either more or more often than you have. No one has lied to you or about you more than you have. And one of the primary things that we have a tendency to lie to ourselves about is this last thing Hebrews mentions here, what the Bible calls the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. The Bible won't just reveal you know, the bad behavior in your life, because that's not all that difficult to, to you know, to, to point out. The Bible will reveal the real motivation for even the best things that you do. Um, this is kind of a personal story. I've never, uh, never, never shared this one with you all before, but it, it, I think it illustrates this point really well, if I can just kind of make myself vulnerable up here for a minute. Uh, it was August 17th, 2014, that I assumed the role that I'm in now at this church. Uh, I came on as the associate pastor January 2013. We had an interim pastor, and 18 months later, he moved on. And so by process of elimination, I got a promotion. Only pastor left on staff. And that was was an extremely high-pressure time in my life. I I was only married for, um, I'd only been married for just over a year at that point. And Katie and I had, um, we have four kids now, but at that time we only had our, our firstborn son. He was just a few weeks old. And when I assumed this role at this church, I, you know, prior to that I was largely untested. Um, I, uh, I had never really taught more than two Sundays in a row and didn't even know if I would be able to do that. And I felt that I had um, just a great deal to prove. And so what that translated to for me was, was really for that specifically that first year um, in this role, 
uh, it really, it, it wasn't uncommon for me to be at the church six or seven days a week. And even when I wasn't here, um, even when I was home, even when I was somewhere else, mentally and psychologically, I was here. You know, even outside of office hours, I was, I was uh, taking a lot of phone calls and meeting people at Starbucks and, and answering emails and, and e- even at home, just constantly kind of obsessing over the next teaching because the next one had to be better than the last one. And, and after about a year of this, after Everett turned one, I remember Katie sat me down at the kitchen table. We were living in a townhome in Glen Burnie at the time. And Katie sat me down and through tears, she told me that I could not keep living that way and that I had just missed our son's first year of life. And it was one of those come to Jesus conversations. Uh, I share that story with you first off to point out that had you asked me what I was doing or what was really going on in my life or why I was living the way that I was living for that first year, obviously, I would not have told you, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sacrificing my family on the altar of ministry. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm completely dipping out on, on my son's first year of his existence. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of the sin of overwork because I'm not trusting God. I wouldn't have said any of that. I wouldn't have admitted any of that. I don't even know that I was entirely aware of any of that. And what I certainly would not have said is that underneath all of my, you know, overwork was just a great deal of fear. You know, the fear of failure. The fear that my next teaching wouldn't be good enough. Or the fear that, God forbid, the church would collapse on my watch, which was something that drove me and literally kept me up at night. And still does to a degree, but at least I'm on to it now like I wasn't back then. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to identify that, any of that in my own life. And the, the reason that I'm telling you all this is simply to point out that what, you, what the Bible's saying you and I need, perhaps more than anything else, is something outside of us that can tell us the truth about what's really going on in our lives. Because every single one of us right now is lying to ourselves about something to some degree. Every single one of us. You look at the Bible says that the heart's desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? That means that right now, whether we try to or not, we're hiding things from ourselves. We have blind spots. We need something outside of us to tell us who we are, to tell us who we're becoming, to tell us how serious the situation that we're in really is, and to tell us what's really going on beneath the surface of our hearts, because we're not going to arrive at those conclusions on our own. And as painful as it is to face ourselves, as painful as it is to come to all of those conclusions, not only will we never grow until we do, but our lives will eventually fall apart unless we do. And there is not a piece of literature in existence that's capable of doing that for you and I like the Word of God is because this is the only document you will ever set eyes on that is both living and active. So secondly, James says we need to study it intently. We also need to study it reflectively. But thirdly, and this will be the last one, what we're told here is that we need to study it obediently. Now this one's pretty obvious, but what is striking to me is where James talks about this in this passage. What James is saying here is that if, if, if you, first off, you look intently into the Bible, and then after that, you allow it to look into you, after that, lastly, James talks about persevering in good works. Now, I couldn't help but find it interesting uh, that the very last j- thing that James mentions here is the part where we actually do stuff. Because usually when we think about being a doer of the word, the first thing that comes to our mind is, is behavior. Ironically, it's the very last thing that James mentions in this passage, and I think the reason for that is because even the ability to do what God has called you to do depends on how well we do those first two things. 
It depends on how, how intently we look into the Bible and let the, let the Bible intently look, look into us. Only then will we, will we begin to develop the wisdom to even know what it is that God is uniquely calling us to do. And James says here not just to do these good works, but he says to persevere in them. And I was just curious this week, I looked up the Greek word that he uses there, and it's an incredibly strong word. When James says you need to persevere in this, that's a word that lit, it has two possible definitions. It means to survive or to remain alive. That's what James is talking about. And I think the point here is that there are, there's a lot of commands in Scripture that cut so sharply against the grain of your and my heart that to obey God in those moments is going to feel like a kind of death to us. And it should, because that's exactly what Jesus said following him would be like. According to Jesus himself, a lifestyle in the footsteps of Jesus is quite ironically a lifestyle of death. It's about dying to ourselves each and every day. It's an incredibly painful process, but it's an incredibly important process because as C.S. Lewis once famously said, nothing in you that has not died can ever be raised from the dead. So James calls us first to study intently, secondly to study reflectively, thirdly to study obediently, but the promise that's attached to all of that at the end of this is he, he says, in no uncertain terms, you will be blessed. And maybe you wonder, what kind of blessing are we talking about here? And he tells us in this passage that the specific blessing is freedom. That's why he calls the Bible in this passage the perfect law of freedom. So if you think about this, it's, it's kind of a, it's ironic that what James is saying is that if you submit yourself to the word of God, if you allow the Bible to impose restrictions on your life, then you will be free. Now that doesn't make any sense to modern people because the way that we tend to define freedom, at least in our culture, is freedom is the absence of restrictions. If you have any restrictions on your life whatsoever, then, then you're not really free. And if I can, with an easy kind of low-hanging fruit example here, let's just test that by thinking about fish. Or let's say you're out on the water this week and you see a fish uh, and your heart begins to burn within you for said fish because you notice that this fish has been very narrow-mindedly restricted to the water. And that's not fair because dry land has a lot to offer. And you start thinking about, you know, the, the, bree the cool breeze that we get to experience this side of the water. We got mountains up here, grass, dirt, trees, direct sunlight. That's pretty sweet. And so you decide to get a hold of that fish and say, live your best life now, buddy, and you throw it onto dry land. What will happen the moment you do that is that that fish will begin to deteriorate, and if nothing's done for it, eventually it will die. And so what you have there is this, this kind of ironic example that the complete removal of all restrictions over that fish's life has led to that fish's death. And basically, that's what the Bible is saying has happened to every one of us. That all the way back in Genesis 3, the fatal flaw there was we decided that we were going to cast off the restrictions of a creator who loved us, believing that we knew better. And the story of mankind is, is ironically that in throwing off all of our restrictions, we forfeited our freedom. And so the, the, the conclusion that I'm trying to drive at here is that our understanding of freedom needs to change. What the Bible is telling us here is that freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but hear this, it's also not just the presence of restrictions. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions in your and my life, restrictions that coincide with our nature. And so with this definition, 
Christians are people who understand that, that the Bible, while it is absolutely full of restrictions, it's going to call us to say no to things we'd rather say yes to, yes to things we'd rather say no to. It is full of restrictions, but it's restrictions given to us by a creator God who knows our design and loves us. And so to cast off those restrictions is to do so at our own peril, but to submit to those restrictions is to find the freedom that a fish will only find in water. And so these are the promises that James offers to people who both view and do the Bible correctly. As great as that is, I can't end here. I'm on the way out now. We're going to start landing the plane, but let me just point this out. If I left us here, and the basic you know, point of this teaching is, all right, so study it intently, study it reflectively, study it obediently, see you next week. What you would find if you, if you attempted to just go do this is that the Bible would have the opposite of the effect that James says it should have in your and my life. Not only would it not bring you freedom, it would bring you the opposite of that. I can say this with confidence because that is exactly what it happened to a group of people recorded for us in Scripture. It's funny, when I was, when I was trying to think about how to end the teaching this week, I think it was um, Thursday night, I was reading my kids a... Um, a Bible story from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I cannot recommend strongly enough to parents of young kids. And the particular story we were looking at is, is a, um, it's a scene in Israel's history where they were brought back from, from 70 years in captivity back to the promised land, uh, and they basically were rediscovering God's word. It's recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so I, in my own time I read it this week. You can, you can read it. It's specifically recorded in... Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8, it's a really fascinating scene. What happens there is uh, when the Israelites were brought back after being in captivity in a foreign land where they could not worship God as they were called to, as, as they were designed to, when they were finally brought back after 70 years there, Ezra the scribe stood on a, a wooden stage and he read the Bible to them. They did this from, from daybreak until noon. And I just want to pause here and say, based on what James has said here, you, you would think you know how the Israelites would respond. There should be celebration. There should be a little bit of that. There should be joy. There should be, you know, everybody should be losing their minds with how happy they are. And yet, you read that story, and what happened is when the, the word of God was read to the people of God, it caused them to weep and to mourn to the point that Ezra, Nehemiah, and the rest of the Levites had to command them to stop. It's a really strange story because they basically tell the people, listen, we're finally back in the land God gave us. This is supposed to be a happy time. You all are killing the mood. They command them to stop crying and to go basically celebrate. Ezra tells them, you need to go get some good drink, some good food, find some good friends, and try to forget how bad this is. Which is so interesting to me because the people in Israel at that time were doing exactly what James says you have to do here. They were studying the word intently. I mean, I guarantee you, nobody here has had a Bible study like they had that day. Opened the word of God at daybreak and didn't stop until noon. Just sitting under the, the revealed word of God for five, six, seven hours. They were studying it reflectively, letting it show them who they were. They were studying it obediently with a total willingness to hand their lives over to God. Yet it produced the exact opposite of what James says it should. The question is, how do you explain that? And the answer is because this is what the Bible does. If it was just you and the Bible and nothing else, what the Bible does is, is it reveals to us what our hearts most deeply sense and most deeply fear, which is that we have a problem that goes so deep that we can't fix it. That's what the law of God does by itself. So the question that that episode in, in, in 
Nehemiah chapter 8 leaves us with, really it's, it's the whole question that the entire Old Testament is leaving us with, is what can be done about this? And how could James say that imperfect people could look into a perfect law and find anything other than condemnation? And the answer comes, like everything else in the Old Testament, the answer only comes when we meet Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What that verse is getting across is that Jesus is the full and final communication of God. This is exactly why the New Testament tells us that Jesus is actually the Word made flesh. And what nobody saw coming that day in in Nehemiah chapter 8 is this idea that the Word of God, which is this impossible standard that we could never reach up to, that Word came down to us. But that is exactly what's happened in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus, during his time here, perfectly lived this life that James calls us to hear only at the end of his life, instead of the blessing that James promises, Jesus received a curse. Scripture says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Jesus perfectly lives out the Bible, yet he receives the curse that you and I deserve for not living out the Bible. And the reason that Jesus did that is so that by grace through faith in his name, we could receive the blessing that he deserved instead of the curse that we deserve. In other words, the gospel is that the word of God, the standard that should condemn you, that standard, that word became flesh and was condemned for you so that you might be set free from the power of sin to live as you were designed to live. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. Ultimately, the, the only way that you and I will approach the word of God and walk away from it with more joy, like James says we should have, than more despair like it did for the people of Israel, is when we learn to see Jesus in it. Jesus himself said this. During his time here, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think you'll find life in them, yet those scriptures testify about me. And what Jesus is saying there is that you will not find life in the Bible until you learn to find Jesus in the Bible. No passage of scripture has been understood until we understand how it leads us to the feet of Jesus. And how that works and and what that means for all these different passages is obviously a sermon for another time. But we cannot read the Bible the way that James has called us to until we learn to read it through the lens of what Jesus has done for us. Because when we do that, when we allow every passage to lead us to the feet of Jesus... What we'll find over and over again is that two seemingly paradoxical ideas are driven into our hearts, which is first that we are more sinful than we dared believe, while at the very same time more loved than we ever dared hope. So sinful that Jesus had to die for us. There was no other way, yet so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. And what that does is that message sinks more deeply into a human heart is first off it makes us the kind of people who are humble enough to receive the word the way James calls us to here, but at the same time, it produces a security in us that we will be able to let the Bible tell us the truth about ourselves, to face the areas of our life that need to change without flinching, knowing that our relationship with God depends not on what's in our heart, but on what's in his. And change will happen over and over throughout our lives as we're continually melted by the story of a Savior who was so unwilling to see you condemned that he became condemned for you. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how to read the Bible. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, in light of this passage, I just feel that it's appropriate to thank you that you're a God that communicates, that you're a God of revelation, that you haven't left us to feel around in the dark, to guess blindly whether or not we're doing this thing the way that it's supposed to be done, that you have, you have revealed everything to us. And more than just giving us a message, God, you gave us a person who perfectly embodied that message. The word became flesh and lived the life that we could never live, paid the price that we should have paid so that we might have new life in his name. God, please help us to see your son Jesus in every letter, every word, every verse, every chapter, every book of this Bible so that from now until the day that we stand before you, we will be transformed evermore into his image for your glory and our joy. All God's people said, amen.